Working Blind, sharing the stories of working blind people from across the globe. Hello and welcome to another episode of Working Blind. This week I'm here with Matthew Horsbull, who works as a Braille transcriber. Hi Matthew, thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. So you work as a Braille transcriber at Excel Grange and you've been doing that for a number of years, is that correct? That's right. I started in January 2014, so it's been about, what, five years now? It's been a while. <laughs> it's been over five years. Wow. Where did that time go? <laughs> yeah, it definitely goes really, really fast. Um, and what kind of does your job involve there? Well... <clears throat> Most print, I mean, it's print to Braille transcription, but most print starts its life electronically now um, of any form. I mean, whether it's published print or whether it's just print that somebody's written, normally it's written on a computer. And so my job involves in the main receiving the files that people have created, which look nice. Um, You know, they, they print out really nicely. And I have to go through them with a fine tooth comb and make sure that they will Braille nice and some people are really good at making them braille nice and some people are really not and so i have to go through and tidy them up and then i um send them to through a braille translation package and let it do a lot of hard work and then check that it's worked properly and then emboss it and staple it and send it on its way to the classrooms and you're working well you're producing braille for children who are blind that's right yes Exel grange school has quite a large number of blind students um it has it used to be a blind school. It's not really a blind school anymore, but it still has probably about seven or eight students with varying needs, but all of them read Braille to one extent or another. And, you know, you said you've been there for around five years, and this is kind of a difficult question for a lot of people, but how did you end up in that job? Was it something you kind of thought, I want to be a Braille transcriber and I'm going to work towards this? Or did you go through another pathway? No, I fell into it by accident. Um, I've always been interested in how Braille was put together. Uh, I I learned Braille when I was three, four, five. Um, I can't really remember, but all I can remember is that by the time I was doing year six SATs, so I would have been 11, by the time I did year six SATs, I was fluent in Braille and I wasn't having Braille lessons anymore. Um, Apart from in maths, where I had a tiny bit of extra help, but I've always been interested in how it's been put together. And when I left school, we were on SEB. And by the time I left college, I went to RNC in Hereford. By the time I left there, we were on UEB. And I was interested in all of that sort of thing. So I had an eye on UCAF, which is the UK Association for Accessible Formats, which deals with this stuff, but didn't really think that I was going to be getting into the industry. And I had my heart set on being a computer programmer, so I studied to that end and went to Coventry University, and I needed mobility training. And due to lots of administrative problems here, there, and everywhere, I thought that I'd better go and find my own mobility training. So I approached Guide Dogs, and they had somebody who worked part-time at Guide Dogs as a, a Guide Dogs mobility, well, as a mobility officer, not a GDMI, but a mobility officer and part-time at Exel Grange School uh, on sort of outsourced. And he did my mobility and he said, we've got a student who needs help with her Braille maths. Can you help us out? And I said, well, yes, I probably can. Um, you need help with your Braille and I need extra mobility lessons. So this seems a workable solution. And so it worked like that for a while. And then I got bored of my degree 
<laughs> and Exol, yeah, oh yeah, really. I mean, I really did get so bored of my degree. And Exol decided that there was more work than a volunteer could be expected to do. And the particular people was just about to go into secondary and lots of staff didn't know Braille and there was going to be a high need for transcription. And so they advertised the post and I applied for it and uh, and I got it. Wow, that's a, that's a really interesting story because for a lot of people, you know, they really work in it towards gaining qualifications in the field and then apply for loads and loads of jobs is what I've heard from a lot of people. Whereas you seem to have been quite lucky to fall into that kind of job. Yeah. Um, I had three years at Hereford. So my, I guess most people have two years to do their A-levels. I had three uh, because Hereford was big on living skills and that sort of thing. And the, I suppose the idea was if you spent too much time on living skills and, and failed your A-levels, you had a, a year to resit them. Um, this didn't happen. I passed all my A-levels. So I had a third year to play about with. So I did some fun subjects and Braille was one of them. So I came out of Hereford with a BTEC level three qualification in Braille, which at the time was not dissimilar to the RNIB certificate. So I did have a qualification, but I never actually thought I'd use it. And in your job now, so you said you're producing braille for your pupils and you mentioned the transfer from SEB to UEB can you explain that a bit for people who maybe aren't braille users or don't know much about the braille I don't know if I should call it industry but yeah (laughs) well industry is as good a word as any I think um yeah so braille was invented by this chap called Louis Braille and he was a Frenchman and so it didn't have the letter W in it. And so a load of English countries got together and said, look, we really ought to uh, make an English version of it. And there was some basic agreement way, way, way back when this is what English Braille would look like. And then all the national countries went along and did different things with it, such that if you borrowed a book from America um, about 10, 15 years ago, basically you'd be able to read it. But America had decided that capital letters were important and England had decided that capital letters weren't important. So American books were a lot bigger because they had capital signs all over the place and and now it's tended not to. Um, We had different ways of writing mathematics because that came later. We had different ways of writing uh, computer braille, you know, email addresses, website addresses. Um, And... The, the the print world was moving on a pace and technology was moving on a pace. So we had people using Braille note takers and they needed to make sure their Braille note takers were set to the right Braille table. Otherwise, the print coming back out of their Braille note takers wasn't very good. And, um, and, and basically everything just couldn't really cope with the fact that everything was a bit fragmented. So um, to cut a, a long story a little bit shorter, um, there was a move in the 90s to try and standardize the braille code and it took a long 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 time <laughs> the the EU code was finally approved in 2004 and uh, i think only two countries i think it was australia and new zealand were the only two countries that used it from day one um england decided they'd use it around about 2011 and the US followed sort of because they decided in part of them not to use the maths code in what was it 2012 I think I mean it was within six months of us doing it so we had basically the same implementation so basically it standardized the the braille code across all of the English-speaking countries and you've always been a transcriber under UEB which is unified English braille or did you start before 
that. Yeah, it's crazy. So I learned SEB all the way through school, of course. And then I did my exam. I did my RNC exam in SEB because the UEB decision hadn't quite been taken, I don't think, when I did my braille exam. So I was qualified in SEB. Um, and then UEB came along. But I've always transcribed in UEB, but I was very lucky in that um, I came into it as everybody was having to make the shift from SEB to UEB. So there was lots of training available. Um, there was lots of face-to-face -face training on offer, which I didn't go to actually, uh, but there were lots of online courses. Uh, there was an absolutely fabulous one from Canada, which the UK modified for its own ends. Uh, and I mean, that was just fantastic. So I had lots of practice exercises and lots of samples and um, there was lots of hype about it because it was all new and exciting and there were lots of FAQs and mailing lists where you could ask questions and things. So I came in at a very good time and always transcribed in, in UEB. Um, and do you think, I don't know if this is a difficult question, but is the world of Braille transcription very accessible to a blind person? It's more accessible than I thought it would be, actually. I, one of the things that I found really hard when I applied for this job was this notion that actually, if I can do the transcription, why does the transcription need to happen? Because surely, you know, I'm just a blind person. So I mean, surely any old blind person could do this transcription. Um, that's not true, actually. Um, you, Transcription is as much an art form as a science. All the software is accessible. You know, Word is accessible, Duxbury is accessible. Um, the embossers, unless you go very high end, you know, the, the high end Braille embossers don't do it, but most embossers now have got spoken user interfaces and stuff like this. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's accessible. It takes a certain mindset and it's a certain mindset that a lot of people don't have um, because as I alluded to earlier on, transcription is very much an editing job. You're looking at documents and you're having to impose structures. You're having to say, well, this is what I would imagine would be a heading level two. So I'll put a heading level two in here. And this is what I imagine would be a, uh, an emphasized passage. So I'll, I'll make an emphasized passage out of it. And sometimes you come across things that haven't been edited very well. And so you have to invent headings and you have to invent messages to put inside things. And you have to try and make the messages flow with the text so you, you sort of um I, I always said to people learning braille sighted people learning braille that you have to think like a blind person before you really can get before you can master braille and it's kind of the same if you're a blind transcriber you kind of have to learn you kind of have to or at least as far as i'm concerned find sight really interesting and you have to learn how to think like a sighted person and you have to you know for a blind person a table can have what four columns at most, five columns at most, and they're tiny, tiny columns if you've got five columns. So most of the time you limit it to about two or three. For a sighted person, a five column table is nothing. And so you kind of have to recognize that the way sighted people lay things out is very different. And there isn't really training in that. You just kind of have to well, learn it on the job or, or, or have an eye for it or, or something. But I mean, that's the least accessible part of it. Once you've cracked that, the actual transcription itself, yeah, it's, it's perfectly fine, accessible, no problems there. Okay, that's cool because I obviously know you are a transcriber and I, I have kind of connections with other people who are working in that industry in various different countries but it's not something that i would say you know a lot of blind people are doing i mean the vast majority of braille transcribers i know are are sighted people um who 
some of them have been doing it for a really long time. So that was just always my experience with, with Braille was that it was always produced by sighted people that I was aware as a child that it could be produced by blind people. Well, the biggest limitation is hard copy print or print that's not been produced very well, right? If you give me a textbook in hard copy and say, can you transcribe this? That's the time when I start to say, well, yes, because we have pretty good OCR software now, it can deal with 99% of the things, but the 1% that it can't deal with is probably the 1% that you want transcribed because you can't deal with it yourself. And actually I'm not in the position to deal with that either. However, um, I'm one man working in a tiny little, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a one man department working in a tiny little school. If you end up somewhere a bit bigger, um, that there are some quite big transcription agencies out there, the scanning and the transcription, that the, the scanning is what you would call origination. And, um, and the, the origination and the transcription are separate processes anyway. And so you wouldn't have a blind originator, but you could have a blind transcriber and a sighted person would, would just be on, on the step behind scanning it for you. There are some really cool things that JAWS can do. I talk about JAWS because I don't really know NVDA well enough. I don't think it can do it to the extent that JAWS can do it. Um, if you're going to get into transcription, play around with the speech and sounds manager in JAWS extensively and make it work for you because there are things that you have to know about because you have to make a decision about whether they're important or not. Things like um, if something's bold, you need to know about it. And you, what you don't want to be doing is go through it word by word, character by character, checking whether each letter is bolded. I mean, that just takes time. But the speech and sounds manager in JAWS is very good. So you can, um, what I do is I have a normal voice and I have an emphasis voice. And if anything's bolded, uh, the, the emphasis voice is just a slower version of the normal voice. So if anything's bolded or underlined or italicized or bolded and italicized or bold and underlined or underlined and italicized or, or anything of that nature or in a different color, um, JAWS switches into the emphasis voice. So once I'm switched into the emphasis voice, I then know that I've got to pay more attention to this text and then I'll drill down and I'll, I'll do insert F and find out what's going on. You could have a separate voice for bold and italics and underline, but it gets to a point where you've got so many voices that you can't keep track of what's going on, or at least for me. So I just have one voice that tells me I need to work harder now. That's cool. I never really thought of, obviously, you'll be using assistive technology because you have to, to access the computer. But I never really thought about kind of using it in that capacity. Um, but that seems like a really good use. And I think a use beyond transcription as well. I mean, if you're dealing with text anyway and you're having to read things, often, you know, important text is in bold. Yeah, so I mean, I think being able to do that anyway. Oh, yeah. I've I, I changed church. Two or three years ago, I started going to a new church and I asked them if they could send me their weekly leaflet, you know, the, the, the leaflet that goes in the pews on a Sunday morning. I said, could you, can you email this to me? Because I can't read the print version. And the, the guy got back to me very nice. He said, yeah, um, we have an email distribution list for the weekly leaflet, but it's for a select few proofreaders. And, um, and they proofread it electronically and then we print off the final copy. Um, so would you be happy receiving the proof copy rather than the final copy? Because it saves me a job. And I said, yeah, fine. Send me the proof copy. And um, anyway, of course, 
me being me, got the proof copy and found a load of mistakes. And they were silly things, like something was underlined where it shouldn't be and things like this. And I, I remember writing back to him again, yeah, there's a mistake here, and there's a mistake here. And uh, I think the response was something like, we've got five sighted people looking at this. How is it the blind person that's picked up on this mistake? <laughs> I guess you're just so used to paying attention to all this stuff. It's like second nature now. <laughs> and um, for you, obviously, as part of your job, you said you've done some teaching work. And how, how did you find that as someone who isn't obviously a teacher by trade? Harder than it looks. <laughs> because I don't... Yeah, I'm not a teacher by trade. Uh, I don't have any, I don't even have a degree, right? I dropped out of uni to take this job. And some would say it was a really bad idea because actually the pay isn't great. Um, my attitude is that the pay isn't great, but uh, the unemployment statistics in the blind community scare me. And I was a bit like, I don't like my degree, any, so I'm going to come out with a terrible grade and not be able to find a job anyway. And so I'll just take it and, and you know, at least I can buy a house with it and stuff anyway um yeah i don't have a degree let alone a teaching qualification so i haven't been taught strategies for bad behavior or strategies for um keeping people engaged if they're not on my wavelength and so the very first people i had to teach was amazing because she was basically me but about 10 years younger and so I, I did about three or four lessons with her and I went, yes, I can teach. I, I've, I've mastered this. This is great. And, um, and we really did. She carried, you know, she carried on right the way through GCSEs. I taught her, this is the first year that she's not been at school. And um, we got on really well. We had a really good rapport with each other. Um, and then I had to teach somebody else. Uh, and it was a completely different experience because I went in really cocky. I went, yeah, of course I can teach this. You know, I'm, I'm brilliant at this. I should just become a teacher now by default. And then I went in and they, they weren't listening. Hey, you're not listening. But, but the other one did. So why aren't you? And, um, and then I didn't know what to do for a long time. And, um, and so what I, wh what I did then was um, encourage the TA, uh, a lot of these pupils have additional needs. And so encourage the, the, their, their regular TA to sit in with me. And so then I could watch what the TA did to get them remotivated and watch what the teacher did to get them remotivated. And I was very lucky because for the first few years, I, my office was the back of a classroom, which was where the Braille teacher worked. So I could look at the Braille lessons and the one-to-one -one Braille lessons and keep half an ear on the strategies that, that the Braille teacher used. And that's really cool. And you keep kind of coming back to not liking university. Um, and I just want to touch on that a bit in terms of your education previous to kind of your working life. So obviously you mentioned going to RNC, which for those who don't know, I did mention it in a previous episode is um, essentially a school. So a college, so college is in post 16 education. So does the last couple of qualifications for the last couple of years of school and some adult education. And it's a school for, blind students post 16 but before then kind of what experiences did you have in education I mean you were a braille reader so obviously you had quite positive 
support in education do you think that's kind of helped you in the job market and things like that your previous educational experiences it's a very mixed bag i've always gone to blind school i went to this tiny little blind school called priestly smith and it was a day blind school maintained by the local authority which is very rare in england um exel grange ironically uh, for having talked about it being rare exel grange is the other well-known one or certainly was um, but actually Exel Grange used to be a boarding school, so does that really count? But anyway, it's not anymore, so I guess it does. But I went to Priestley Smith. I academically did as well as I could have been expected to do, I think. Um, I came out with a handful of A's and a handful of B's and, and one or two C's in subjects I didn't really care about. <laughs> People told me that I could have got A stars. I don't think I could have done. Um, but <sighs> the problem with blind school is that it's very small. And certainly in my experience, um, I was the brightest person in the class because the class size was so small. And so because I was the brightest person in the class, I ended up getting put on a pedestal all the time. And people told me that I was really bright because actually by comparison, I was. But if you'd compared me to a, a mainstream class, I probably wasn't. And um, that made me quite a cocky child because I was really bright. And... Um, thankfully or not but i mean thankfully i guess we we shared a site with a mainstream school and so some of my gcse's i did go into mainstream to do them and i sort of realized then that i was doing okay um but i could do with a bit of a reality check because everyone else has got friends and i haven't and i don't really know what to do about this um and i can't really do anything about it at the moment because well, friendship groups have been developed and I'm not in them. So let's just get through the next couple of years, which is what I did. And I then had to make a choice about where I went to college. And my attitudes, I guess, really, my attitude to life started changing at that point because Hereford did wonderful things for me. Academically, it didn't do me very well. And I knew this going in and my parents said, well, do you really want to go to Hereford? You could go, you could do so much better than Hereford. And I said, yes, but the problem is if I go somewhere other than Hereford, I'll get amazing qualifications, but that will be the focus and I'll get amazing qualifications and I'll go to an amazing university and either sink or swim, but probably sink. And um, then I'll have to go to a job interview. I might do very well in academically, but still it sinks socially. And then I'll have to go to a job interview and I will be so completely inept that I won't be able to get to the interview. So it's all well having a CV, but actually what have I got to show for it? And I said, well, look, I'm going to go to Hereford and it's going to teach me these skills. And um, if I do absolutely terribly academically, I can go back and do my A-levels later on, but I need to learn these skills sooner rather than later. And so that fueled me all the way through Hereford. And there was this sort of nag, nag, nag that, oh, well, um, you're bright. You know, this, this you're bright thing kept on rearing its head. And I, I'm sure I am. I just don't think I'm, I'm anything special, really. But this, this whole thing of, yes, you, you must go to university because you're bright. And, I, you know, looking at it now, I think, yeah, but if, there was, if this was a sighted person coming out with the grades that I came out with, for whatever reason they came out with those grades, you would not be encouraging that sighted person to go to university because they were average. I mean, they weren't bad, but they weren't, to my mind, they were not university grades, but university was really the only conceivable pathway because let's face it, I wasn't gonna get a job as a delivery driver. I wasn't gonna get a job in retail. Um, 
I, you know, I wasn't going to get a bar job. Um, I was going to, so, so I wasn't going to get a paper round. I mean, I didn't have a paper round as a child, you know. Um, so what other way is there into anything above that level of job other than a university degree? And so a university degree was kind of enforced upon me. And I didn't really want it. But at the same time, I recognized that A, uh, it was a free ticket away from home, which I really wanted really desperately because living at home was starting to feel very uh, claustrophobic. <laughs> and, uh, and well, really, what else was I going to do with life? So the attitude with which I went into university was one of, well, it gets me away from home and I guess there's nothing better to do, so I might as well do it. And um, there were two subjects that I could have studied. I could have studied music or I could have studied computer science. Both were my strongest subjects. And I knew that I liked music and I couldn't afford to lose music. I knew that I liked computer science, but I could afford to lose it because actually I was quite unhealthily addicted to computers as a child, so I could afford to lose that quite happily. And uh, well, that's what university did. I went to university, I started studying programming and I went, I can't do this as a job. This is the most soul destroying thing. I care how my computer works insofar as I, I want to get things done efficiently. But actually, when you start teaching me how to program washing machine circuit boards, go and teach someone else. <laughs> yeah, you just want to buy a fully functioning washing machine. You don't want to program it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly that. And I mean, I guess after all this, are you glad you went? <laughs> yes, it taught me a lot. It taught me, that, it taught me <laughs> that I'm not the person that I'd been told I was. I'd been told that I was bright and therefore I needed to be academic and therefore I needed to earn lots of money as a researcher or, a, or some, some high paying job somewhere. And actually, money is nice to have. Uh, I, I would, you know, I'd love to have a bit more money. Who wouldn't like to have a bit more money? But actually, I love it. I can go and work and I can come home at the end of a work day and I can drop all the work and not pick it up till tomorrow morning. And I can go to the cathedral and I can sing for two and a half hours and not then worry about when I come home, I've got to do this and this and this and this. And, uh, you know, I can spend time with my friends and not worry about work and, and I can... I can have holiday whenever I want it and not be on call at any time. And You know, actually, I can afford to do all this on the salary that I'm on. So why really do I need any more? Yeah, I suppose it's, it's all about, like, can you live in a way that you want to live? And for some people, that's like having loads and loads of money. But to be honest, if you're able to do the things you want to do and have done it without a degree, then you haven't really lost out. And kind of coming on from that briefly onto more Braille stuff is kind of, do you think for young blind people or blind people of working age, Braille is an essential skill for job seeking? Because there's research that obviously says that Braille does help you when you're, you know, looking for a job. And But there are also blind people who says, no, no, we don't need Braille. I mean, what do you think about that? Huh. Braille teaches you a lot. Um, Braille, for me, taught me how to spell. There are people that would disagree with this because of grade two. But to me, there are words that I, I think in Braille, even if I'm typing, I think in Braille. And if you look at, I mean, let's take a word like aesthetic. I can't think of the word aesthetic now without putting a T-H-E sign in the middle of it. And I wouldn't know that aesthetic started with an A-E unless I'd read it. Um, because speech isn't going to tell you this. Um, I, 
if I have to think about which which there do I use, you know, there and there, T-H-E-R-E versus T-H-E-I-R, well, I don't think of it like this. I think of dot five that and four, five, six that, and then back translate it because I've read it. And also there are little clues like, you know, dot five H um, is H-E-R-E and dot five that is T-H-E-R-E. So the two with the dot five are the, are the two with E-R-E on the end, you know, and all of this stuff that, um, I just don't think I'd have picked up if I was using speech. And also the layout of documents. Um, there are blind people that can write very well and who can spell very well and all of this sort of thing who forget to put page numbers in their documents. And when they're pulled up about it, they say, well, what does it matter? And I think if you'd received a document in Braille without page numbers, you would not be asking this question because a document without page numbers is horrific. Everybody knows it. A document with, um, everyone who reads Braille knows it, a, a document with a, a running header that is meaningless. I, I honestly, I had um, a book from RNIB that was divided into chapters. Um, what was it called? Crowfield Curse, that's what it was called. Um, it was divided into chapters and the running header across the top of the page was supposed to say the chapter number, but it was embossed on paper that was too small. So it just said Crowfield curse across the top of every page of every, uh, how are you supposed to find your way around this book? And it's things like this because I've read it that I'm then able to go, well, actually in my documents, I'm going to make sure there are headers and footers that make sense. And I've only come across two or three column tables, but nonetheless, I've come across tables. Therefore, I can understand tables. Therefore, I can write tables. I can write six, seven, eight column tables in print because I understand how they might look. And there's all of this sort of thing that's actually... Braille is not the only skill. I'll go days without reading Braille, by the way. I mean, I, I read my emails in, in speech. Uh, I reply using speech. Uh, you know, I, I type, but text-to-speech reads back what I'm typing. Um, I check my bank statements online and, and all that's done with speech. Um, you know, but I wouldn't be where I was today without Braille. And there are things that you just can't do very easily without Braille, like presentations. If you've got to make a presentation and you've got to have one headphone in so that you can hear what your speech is saying, A, how does that look to a sighted audience? Anyone else that was standing at the front of the room with headphones in would look really rude. Yeah, it seems really bad-mannered. <laughs> yeah, so how does that look? And secondly, you can't see what your audience is doing, so what you really need to do is listen for things like are people fidgeting? Um, are people agreeing with you? Are people disagreeing with you? Um, you know, are, are people going in their bag for their cough sweets? Um, you know, anything like this, you need to be able to hear it and pay attention to it and react to it. And if you've got a headphone in, you're restricting your ability to do that. Now, some people might say they can work through it. Good for them if they can, but I can't. So you still think Braille has an important place then? Absolutely. I mentioned singing in the cathedral before. Um, I do a lot of this. I would not be able to do it without Braille. Can you imagine singing in a choir with headphones in so that you can hear what words you're God. supposed to be singing? How can you hear the people around you if you've got headphones in? It's ludicrous. <laughs> that would be awful to even try. <laughs> I don't even know how you would do that. It would be an absolute nightmare. I mean, you would 
just ruin your ability to sing for a start. Yeah. Well, you'd hear your own voice and you'd realise how bad it was. I mean, <laughs> who wants that? Or do you just want to blend in? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, thank you so much. It's been really interesting and I'm sure there's more we could cover, but we only have so much time. So thank you for agreeing to appear on the podcast and talking about the work you're doing and kind of your interest in Braille and everything. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Working Blind. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. For more of my advocacy initiatives, including my blog, visit my website, http colon slash slash catchthesewords.com. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at catchthesewords. That's C-A-T-C-H-T-H-E-S-E-W-O-R-D-S. If you have any comments or feedback, please email me holly at catchthesewords.com.